Elrod, how you doing? I'm well, thanks. I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to this weekend. Um, I am too. I've got a uh, Spartan race I'm running tomorrow. I have a lot of friends doing really? the Spartan race. I do. What people don't know about, I, maybe they know about this, but you do triathlons. I do. And do you have one coming up? I have one in June. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. It, around here or where is that? Uh, it's, no, not here. Okay. All right. So, um, it's been a crazy week uh, for this uh, presidential campaign and for Washington. Nonstop chaos at sixteen hundred. We've had we had a big story. The New York Times broke on Trump's taxes. Bill Barr was held in contempt by the House Judiciary Committee. Um, just all sorts of uh, major breaking news stories, uh, and there was a lot of news taking place on the campaign trail as well. And to help us break it all down, uh, we're excited to have uh, on the electables uh, Alexi McCammon who is a uh, reporter for Axios. She covers um, the campaign 2020, the White House. She's broken stories on Trump's uh, schedule. Uh, She is a fixture now on uh, cable television, one of the uh, uh, smartest uh, reporters out there in terms of breaking things down for the public. And, uh, I told him to say that. <laughs> it's true. It's all very true. Thank and you. we're really excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank yeah. you, Alexi. You have a cool space. Yeah, thank you. That's fun. Yeah, it's not bad. Got a whiteboard right behind you. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be doing You can some whiteboard print. stuff out. Yeah, some plays. Um, so let's, uh, let's just get at it. Uh, you know, we're five months into this race for the Democratic nomination. In your mind, where do things stand? Five months in feels like a lifetime, which is crazy that it's only been five months. I mean, but that's the point, right? Like, things stand pretty ambiguously, right? Like, everyone's looking at the polls, and they're talking about Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders leading, but they've been leading even before the cycle really took up in earnest. And where things stand is, I guess, what I hear from voters when I'm traveling, which is that they are sort of just shopping, they're shopping and shopping and shopping, and there's no one that really stands out to many of these folks. Obviously, if you're at a, Redo, uh, a rally for Beto O'Rourke, then everyone loves him. But when I'm talking to people, especially swing voters around the country, the main thing that I hear, which is where I think this race stands, is that they're just sort of feeling out all of their options and taking it one day at a time and feeling at times a little overwhelmed with um, how many people are running. And where have you traveled? When you say you've traveled across yeah. the country, what states have you traveled to and what are you hearing? Like, what are the issues? What are the main priorities that you're hearing from voters about what they want in a candidate and, and what they're ultimately looking for in terms of who they plan to support? That's what's interesting when I talk to people about what they're looking for. And I've been to Texas, Iowa, Ohio, and Wisconsin so far. Um, Early states and delegate-heavy states. Yes, I'm going to South Carolina next month, which I'm very excited about, mm-hmm. uh, and Pennsylvania, which will be fun. But um, the thing that I hear that voters are looking for when I ask them that exact question, Adrian, is they talk about personalities. They talk about someone that they can trust, someone that is nice, someone that is similar, similarly strong to Donald Trump and standing up to other people, but who wouldn't handle things in the way that he does personally, whether you know in interactions with people in person or on Twitter. Um, it's not a lot of policies, and that's not to say that people aren't looking for specific policies. Mm-hmm. The s- things that come up all the time are immigration, the environment, or climate change, and healthcare. Um, sometimes the economy comes up too, but people are really looking for, it seems like, an antidote to Donald Trump's 
entire persona and personality to try to get to a place where they're not feeling so overwhelmed by everything. You uh, conduct or Axios conducts focus mm-hmm. groups, correct? Yeah. Um, in is it just Iowa or is it also? No, other... it's all throughout the Midwest okay. and uh, in Florida. Okay. Uh, and you recently conducted a, a group in mm-hmm. Iowa, yep. um, and I think you've got you're going to be breaking some news on that on Monday. But yep. uh, if you can break a little bit <laughs> on this show, that would be fantastic. What yeah. what what you um, what you glean from the group? So we were in Sioux City, Iowa, and it was 11 Obama-Trump voters, so people who voted twice for Barack Obama and then for Donald Trump in 2016. Usually we have half of the group who voted for Mitt Romney and then voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, but this time it just worked out where Sioux City had a lot of Obama-Trump voters and not a lot of Romney-Clinton voters. Right. So um, it's a two-hour process. One of the most fascinating things is how we start every focus group, which is showing them, maybe it's fascinating to me because I'm relatively new to focus groups, but we show them photos of everyone who's running for president without a name, and we ask them to rate everyone, everyone, all, all so of them, all of them, mm-hmm. including okay. Marianne Williamson. Yeah, wow. all of them. Wow. Uh, and then we'll do like AOC and someone from Congress, or like mm-hmm. this time we did AOC and Bill Barr to see kind of gauge like how much are they paying attention to what's going on. But in any case, we show photos of everyone, and the amount of people who cannot recognize even Joe Biden is wild to me. Like, they obviously know, out of everyone running, they know and recognize Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren more than anyone else. But there are handfuls of people, especially in a group of 11 to 12, five people have said, scored a zero, that they cannot recognize who Joe Biden is. And even among the people who do recognize these folks, we ask them, okay, well, you know, four of you said ranked like a six out of 10 that you know this person. What do you know about them? And they'll be like, oh, Bernie Sanders. Um... He ran for vice president, or he ran for vice president as a third-party candidate. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. And these are sophisticated voters, yes, right? Yes, who are also some of the most consequential voters mm-hmm. because they have no strong party loyalty and can really decide elections. But in any case, that's a long way of saying that you, you realize very quickly how little people know and how much that they're not paying attention to the things that we care about in D.C. But the one thing that surprised me about this group of Obama-Trump voters was that they're not really interested or excited by any of the Democrats running for president yet, but they really, really loved these sort of liberal populist policies that Elizabeth Warren has proposed. That's fascinating. Yes, they loved it. Things like the student loan debt cancellation. They talked about how universities basically make billions <clears throat> profiting off of, you know, young people who are living in poverty because of their student loan debt and how they just think that's unfair. The other really fascinating thing was that the majority of the group thought that infrastructure should be a priority for President Trump and Congress moving forward, and the one way that they wanted to pay for it was by taxing the big banks. And hmm. it was fascinating to me because was that a Trump's question that you about that. posed to mm-hmm. them, or was that something that they came up with collectively as a group? So we posed the question. We gave them three options: taxing big banks. Well, we said like taxing large American corporations such as big banks, um, increasing the federal gas tax, and borrowing money from other countries. And overwhelmingly, people were like, "We should tax the big banks because there are so many of them. They're charging us these overdraft fees." They're everywhere. They can just rename whatever road they invest in via this infrastructure proposal. They can name it, you know, based on their bank name. And it was wild. And these are all things that Elizabeth Warren is talking about. But at the same time, they're not hot on Elizabeth Warren being the next president of the United States. Any reason why? I mean, it ranges from people being unfamiliar with her to um, sexist views. One man in the group was like, the presidency is a man's job. 
you know, and like that's yeah. that's um, difficult to argue with. But that's well, what I find so sorry, Dag. I just, I want, just want to make a point, not a question. But that's what I find so fascinating fascinating about focus groups is you actually get to have you know sort of an un- uninhibited conversation with actual voters who. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are, are swing voters are not necessarily beholden to one particular party or one particular candidate. Yep. And, you know, the, the, as we all know, and we could have, a, you know, multiple episodes just focus on sexism and politics. But the point that I keep making is, unfortunately, perception is reality. Mm-hmm. And while I think it's important for all of us pundits, reporters, whatnot, to push back against that stereotype, we also have to just consider the fact that there are a lot of voters out there who think like the same way that the man mm-hmm. thought, you know, thought about that you talked to in that room, which yeah. means if you are Elizabeth Warren, if you are some of these female candidates, you have to just ignore that group of voters and move on to a different subset. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like they're stuck in like the way that things have always been. And they have these baked in perceptions of the type of person and personality it takes to be president of the United States, even if they're you know, really gravitating toward her policies, Elizabeth Warren's policies. They like the message. They don't want her as the messenger. And that's difficult, I would imagine, to uh, convince people otherwise. Right. Who has uh, impressed you as a candidate on the trail? And who who do you think has fallen short so far? Mm, I mean, I'm constantly impressed by, when I see him on the campaign trail, Julian Castro, because he actually tries to answer the questions as thoughtfully and um, like explicitly as he can. I never really feel when I'm listening to him like he's dodging a question or answering around it to avoid actually answering what was asked of him. But he doesn't get a lot of press attention. He's certainly not resonating in the polls. He's been at 1%, I think, or between 0 and 1% the entire time. You almost never hear about him. But every time I see him on the campaign trail, not only am I surprised by how well he answers questions, but I'm surprised by the um, reception that the crowd has of him, whether it's a larger crowd or these intimate you know, gatherings in Iowa. People would come up to me and be like, you know, I loved Bernie Sanders in 2016, but Man, Julian Castro has my vote now. Yeah. They love him. The people I talk to, especially in these intimate gatherings, they love Julian Castro in small settings. And they all are like, I feel like I've made up my mind. Like, I really like him and want to vote for him. But he, like, that is just not translating anywhere else. And that's consistently both impressive and surprising. To he me. needs a moment, you know. And yeah. I think Pete, Mayor Pete, w- was able to take advantage of several moments that, yeah. uh, occurred on the trail, the town hall that CNN hosted when he went on to Morning Joe, and he really just knocked it out of the park. And I think yeah. Julian Castro, I've heard similar positive things about his performance on the trail, but he needs that you know one moment to sort of open people's eyes because you know I'm looking at a morning consult poll right now, and 61% of uh, Democrats don't don't know who he is. Isn't that wild? Um, He's the only Latino candidate running yeah. in the year of our Lord, 2019. Yeah. And like, nobody knows who he is. Yeah. That is wild to but me. But it underscores mm-hmm. your point about, you know, we we are early in. None of these mm-hmm. folks, I mean, there's some, some of these people are doing digital advertising, but you yeah. know, their, their full advertising campaigns aren't going to start for a while. And many of them, you know, don't, you know, do, they, people don't know who they are. Right. And so... Um, but I, I do think it's, you know, for someone like a Castro, uh, someone like a Klobuchar, 
you know, they need to figure out how do they take advantage of a moment. And I right. think, you know, you thought maybe the Kamala was going to be able to do that with uh, the hearing uh, she did with mm-hmm. um, with uh, Bill Barr. But mm-hmm. while she did, she she was great with her questions. Um, it didn't sort it didn't like it didn't mushroom. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And in uh, the way in which we've seen with. You know, for example, Mayor Pete. So. Right. Yeah. No, it's interesting, and that's what I'm so excited for when the ba- the debates happen, right? Because I'm curious to see if these perceptions of people who are the so-called front runners are baked in to the point where after the debates, everyone still thinks that the t- front runners are doing well, or if someone like Julian Castro or Amy Klobuchar can identify and make a moment for themselves at the debates. I just feel like that would be incredibly difficult. I I agree. And I think the debates are where we're going to really see some of these people either break out or not. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm, if I'm uh, Castro and I'm looking at um, who else is going to be on the stage with me, because I think our Mm -hmm. listeners know this, but there's going to be the first debate, actually the first two debates will be divided into two consecutive nights with up to 10 people on each stage chosen at random. So, and you'll know, I think the candidates will know probably a week or so in advance, maybe Mm -hmm. two weeks in advance, who's going to be on that stage with them, which means their teams will have time to prep and say, okay, are we going to all, you know, should we call up, you know, should Castro's team call up Kamala's team and say, do we want to collectively go in together against Bernie? Or do we, you know, how do we want to strategize to make the most out of this? But people are going to be angling for those breakout moments Mm -hmm. and, you know, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris have had a lot of those breakout mo- moments in the ju- Judiciary Committee when they've been questioning um, a number of Trump administration officials. So they sort of know how to have those moments. But it's going to yeah. be interesting to see if other candidates are sophisticated enough to be able to capitalize on on that. Yeah, that and it'll debate. be really interesting to see how much people care about personality and charisma on the debate stage compared to what I think would be more important, which is like their actual policy answers, because it's the first time that they'll be having a proper policy debate and discussion at a national stage. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if everyone's endorsing something like Medicare for all, then it'll really come down to someone's personality. And I think that's where the Klobuchar's and the Castro's might struggle a little bit is is grasping people's hearts and emotions while also talking about their policies. Right. So the second part of that question was who is who has <laughs> been underwhelming? Um, I don't know. Who, who did you expect more out of? I thought that Kamala's launch was really great, and I thought that because of that she would just soar to the top of the polls forever and ever. Um, But that hasn't happened. And I know polls aren't everything. And that's not to say that I think she's been underwhelming. Um, I think that, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to say anything negative about anyone. (laughs) I hear you. I don't know. We had, you know, there's always the story. Who do you think? I'm going to kind of get to it in a a roundabout way. But um, there's always the stories of campaigns during presidential cycles, like having their resets, right? Every right. camp, even the even people who win, Obama had a reset. Mm-hmm. They all have these stories about how they have resets, and I think the first one that I've seen this cycle is in uh, related to Kamala Harris. The mm-hmm. New York Times did mm-hmm. a piece on how she's trying to reset her campaign to be to take on Trump more forcefully, and um, yeah. and uh, you know this sort of started with uh, her address in Detroit at the NAACP. Um, but um, you know, look, I think from an uh, from a from an operational standpoint, I think they want to run a very professional campaign. Mm-hmm. I think we both agreed that she had a really good launch, and it lasted for what seemed like months—well, um, a couple of weeks at least. <laughs> um, but 
My what I haven't been able to figure out is what is her rationale for running and what is her <laughs> vision. And it's, you know, I think she brings so many impressive things to the table, but uh, I just it. I think the message for me has been lacking a little bit. Yeah. And um, and so that's, you know, I. I think she has been very steady and static. Mm-hmm. And steady is good, but static isn't great. Right. Um, her numbers really have not moved that much. She got a little bump after her uh, announcement, but they, you know, she's been a solid number three. And that's yeah. a you know, good place to be right now. She hasn't started advertising. But when does she, when does she catch fire? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because she has had th- she's maintained this message of – truth-telling and getting back to a state of um, caring about the truth. And that's obviously a way for her to talk about Donald Trump, just not as explicitly as she is now, as you mentioned, after her NAACP um, address. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how she sort of tries to evolve that message of, like, let's get back to where we used to be in a way, which is like a society, she says, that values truth and facts, um, and how she continues to take on Trump. But... I don't know if I, I would say she's been underwhelming. I mean, I don't know. I actually think that she is and her team are quite happy to be at a nice, comfortable number three right now. Mm-hmm. Um, or number four, depending on what poll you're looking at at what state. Um, yeah. You know, when you are the front runner, and we're seeing with this with Joe Biden, I mean, the pressure is on. And we're finally, this cycle, seeing it with Bernie Sanders. And like last cycle, where he was never really the front runner. There were certainly some states that he, of course, won. Um, and that he was consistently pulling ahead of us, including New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. But it was hard to get the media to treat him, um, even though there were just two people in the race, two candidates in the race. It was hard to oftentimes get the media to focus on him and take his record and take you know his opposition research seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're seeing that this time, uh, you know, this this cycle, we're seeing more pressure put on Bernie. How do you think that? How do you think the media, the way the media is treating Bernie this cycle? How do you do? Do you see them taking him more seriously? I know that you weren't you weren't covering twenty sixteen, right? Uh, or, no, I was covering it a little bit, but not okay, for the entire but, but not for the yeah, entire and campaign. not Democrats, right? But do you think the media is taking him more? I guess do you think they're taking his record more seriously? And how do you think that might impact? If so, how do you think that might impact his ultimately ultimate standing? In the long yeah. run. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, I honestly feel like I haven't read much about Bernie this cycle. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting to me because of Bernie's main message so far this election cycle, which is, hey, I'm the reason everyone else is talking about these things. Remember, I was talking about it in 2016 and before that and before that. So, like, I'm here because I've been talking about these things and they're here because I've been talking about these things. And that's interesting to me because it's not really showing like what he would do or what the country would look like under him exactly or new policies that he's proposing or like actual. I mean, he just came out with that legislation yesterday with AOC um, against credit card interest rates. Mm -hmm. But I I feel like it feels like there's a sense of Bernie fatigue almost. Yeah. Like I I sort of feels like he like when we are so obsessed, we being the media with the flavor of the week. Mm hmm. Bernie is not going to be the flavor of the week anytime soon no. after he ran in 2016. And I think that is reflected in the media coverage or lack thereof of his campaign. Which is so interesting. There was a really interesting article in um, Politico which looked at who uh, – this is to your guys' point about the n- news media coverage mm-hmm. of the race so far and who's been dominating it. Mm-hmm. And um, 
there's a passage in the story which goes uh, from January 1st to April 30th. Four candidates, Sanders, Biden, Harris, and Warren, accounted for more than half the primary field's traditional news media mentions. Mm. This was according to an analysis by Politico and um, Meltwater, a media intelligence company. And Sanders and Harris together accounted for nearly half of the primary field's social media footprint. Wow. Yeah, and when you're talking about a race of 22, 23 people, yeah. you know, for it to be dominated by so much by those four. Right. And I'm surprised, Pete, uh, and, and it may just be it. this is capturing – it. well, it's capturing it from, from January 1st okay. to April 30th. Okay. So, it, you know, Pete B. really sort of caught on in, you know, March, late March. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously Harris and Sanders announced their campaigns, you early. know, early on. Yeah. And Biden – you know, was later, but mm-hmm. that's quite, that's to me pretty, you know, pretty significant. And yeah. I think it's important because look, I don't, because there's been, there was a legitimate question in questions and they remain legitimate questions in terms of how the media is covering female candidates mm-hmm. and whether or not yeah, they're getting the appropriate coverage that the older white guys are getting. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying this, uh, uh, rebukes that or, you know, but this right. was just an interesting thing that I looked at to, because yeah. it show, you know, it shows that Harris and Warren are getting a, a significant amount of coverage. But the right. question is, is, you know, what I, you know, is it positive? Is it negative? Is it neutral? Yeah. Um, is it personality driven? If it's, is it policy, policy driven? But I just yeah. found that was a really no, interesting, interesting study. I, I mean, on the question of how the media is covering women I think that's certainly something that I hear all the time like even in casual conversations that Adrian and I have had or like mm-hmm. that I hear people talking about in the green room or like at conferences about this idea of electability and likability and how we're talking about women who are running for president in 2020 um, certainly trying to correct the record from 2016 and everything that Hillary Clinton faced but it is interesting to try to monitor that, and I think that is a helpful thing for everyone to do. Like we said earlier, we're only five months into the cycle. We should continue to monitor that and question whether and how we are covering the women candidates on par with men or um, in the same way that we are with the men. So, Well, I think it's something, a point to consider about this Politico piece that Doug is referencing here. Of the four candidates who are supposedly, or I guess, are actually getting most of the media coverage, Sanders, Biden, Harris, and Warren, three of those candidates have been under attack constantly by President Trump. On Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, at rallies, he's given them all nicknames. Harris has not has been as much of a target, but she has sort of been a target for me right. of his, right? So that's what I think is interesting, and I think the cable media in particular has to be so careful about not falling into Trump's hands on this. And I've yeah. said this on air. I've certainly had conversations with our friends over at um, MSNBC <laughs> about this, that it is, on the one hand, it is difficult if you are a tier two, but certainly a tier three or even sort of like a tier four, like a Seth Moulton yeah. type of candidate to get any kind of media traction or coverage. But at the same time, it is o- oftentimes almost impossible if you are not somebody that Donald Trump is constantly talking about, or if you're a tier one candidate, which right. usually those two are symbiotic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that, that the media has got to be so careful. And I don't even really mean print. I mean, I'm more focused on cable media. It has to be so careful not to fall into this trap because mm-hmm. he wants he wants certain candidates to get covered. Right. Um, you know, he right. wants us to be out there talking about Elizabeth Warren and, mm-hmm. and Pocahontas. And Bernie like Sanders. That. And Bernie Sanders yeah. and social being socialist. Right. That's right. what he wants. I mean, what do you, do you have any reflection or views on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing I will say from the focus group I was referencing earlier, one of the fascinating things that came up too was the fact that all of these folks, and they were from different backgrounds, thought that Donald Trump would have the hardest time beating a candidate of color in 2020. I think in part because these folks voted for Obama, but also because they were sort of like, I mean, what is he going to say to attack them? Mm -hmm. Like, what sort of nickname could he give and get away with? Like, you can't be racist against someone. That's interesting. <laughs> so that's know? what the focus groups were saying, yes. the people in the focus yes. groups. And interesting. But, but He's then, demonstrated you can be, though, I think. I mean, exactly. yeah, but I, yeah, I hope that he would not get away with being racist if exactly. the nominee ended up being a person of color, but that remains to be seen. Anyway, these folks also said that they thought he would have the easiest time beating a gay candidate, which would obviously be Mayor Pete. Mm -hmm. And it was everything from sort of these um, limited views that like being gay is not popular no matter what the left says, which is what one man said. And then um, other people were just like, he sort of to the flip side of the being racist thing, they were like, he is so... Um, like he is someone who loves dragging people through the mud and getting into these really petty fights that we totally expect he would go as radical as possible if he were running against someone who was gay to knock them down in any way he could. And they thought it would be to his success. And I just thought that was fascinating the way they think about like, you know, your sexual orientation and your race and how formidable of a challenger you are against someone like Donald Trump, who seems like an equal opportunity aggressor. But to them, they think he could get away with it easier if the candidate is gay. And were there people in your focus groups, this one in Sioux City that you, you referenced, were there people in there who plan to vote for Trump or who are leaning that direction? Yeah. Or are these people who are focused squarely on beating Trump and are interested in flirting with different candidates in the Democratic primary? It depends, focus group to focus group. This one was the most pro-Trump focus group we've done so far this year um, in that they all were sort of like, we are waiting to see who the nominee is on the Democrat side and what they're talking about. Like, most people sort of said, I don't want a socialist country. Mm -hmm. I don't want a socialist candidate or president. But they liked those Warren-style policies we talked about. They don't hate all the Democrats running for president. They just don't particularly feel excited. What did they think of Medicare for All and the Green New Deal? <sighs> I'm so glad you asked this. I'm also just giving away everything. <laughs> well, w <laughs> this won't run until probably Monday or Tuesday. Okay, that's anyway. exactly. That's fine. Um, well, I'll so just, give it all away. I'll just give a shout out to Engages and Focus Point Global then who help us at Axios run these focus groups. But that's the other thing. These people are almost entirely unfamiliar with Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. We ask them again, and we so we do quantitative and qualitative um, analyses with them. We ask them to scale on a, uh, rank on a scale from zero to ten how familiar they are with the concept Medicare for All, and then the same question with the Green New Deal. And both scored a collective three point zero or lower, which means that people are almost entirely unfamiliar with these concepts and Where what are they these mean. folks getting their news. Another great question and something we asked them, which I love. Mm -hmm. um, a lot, you know, some people will say, oh, I walk, I'll watch Fox News and CNN so I can hear both sides. But the majority of people get their news from Facebook and local news. And I think that sort of explains maybe why they're not hearing as much about Medicare for All or the Green New Deal, because I doubt local cable networks are talking about that. And I doubt they're seeing anything on Facebook about it. Yeah, I would have expected if they were Fox viewers that their, the name recognition around both the Green New Deal and Medicare mm -hmm. for All would have been through the roof. Yeah, you'd think so. But I think that these folks are probably watching, based on what they say, more of their like, local And they're Fox older? Are they, was yes. this an older group? Um, yeah, this one was a little bit older. Usually it skews from like 25 to 70. Right. We try to get a range. So um, this one was like mostly 35 to 70. Right. 
Is Stacey Abrams going to run for president? <laughs> um, if she decides she's qualified for the job, that's what it sounds like she's sort of thinking through, right? Which I think is really commendable. She's not just running for something because it's available or because it's a why not election cycle. She said that running for office is a job and you have to think about whether or not you're qualified for that job. I think she's qualified to run for president. Were you surprised she didn't run for the Senate? No, who was talking about this the other day? Were we on TV together when this happened? I don't think so. Um, it's possible. Someone was talking about basically how, like, governors, or I guess hopeful governors, really don't like the idea of being a senator. John Hickenlooper was like, don't want to run for Senate. That doesn't seem like something that would make me happy. Stacey Abrams obviously was running to be governor, wasn't governor, but doesn't want to be a senator. I don't know why that is. I'm not surprised either, and, I mean... Yeah, I mean, first of all, you're one of 100, and we all know mm-hmm. how long it takes to, you know, have seniority status in the United States Senate. You basically turn like seven or 75 or 80 or 85, <laughs> and you finally get to be the chair or the ranking member of a committee. Um, you know, but 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 also, if you're Stacey Abrams and you are looking at your political future, I mean, she's young, she's got a bright future ahead, but Georgia's going to be a tough state to win mm-hmm. again in 2020. Um, and if you're Stacey Abrams, you're thinking, do I really want to have potentially two losses, right. statewide losses under my belt, right. or do I want to keep my powder dry, keep my name out there, flirt with the notion of running for the presidency, potentially run for the presidency? Um, you know, there are people who, to your point about John Hickenlooper, who I think are saying to themselves, I'd much rather be a failed presidential candidate among 23, 24 other candidates who yeah. also didn't become nominees. I'm in great company with a strong field of candidates than the one guy who, you know, didn't win back the Senate for Democrats because I lost, you know, the, right. the Colorado seat to Cory Gardner or, you know, I lost, um, you know, another Senate seat mm-hmm. to, to the incumbent or the challenger. Yeah. So I can kind of see, I can, I mean, I can definitely see why Stacey Abrams wouldn't run, run for the Senate. Yeah. And speaking of the Senate, the other interesting development recently was Joaquin Castro, Julian Castro's brother, saying he's not going to run for Texas Senate mm-hmm. against John Cornyn, but that's to allow room for MJ Hager, who ran for Congress unsuccessfully, but went totally viral for that first, I think her first and second ads. Yeah. Um, she was running to be as a Democrat, um, if everyone doesn't remember her. Um, mm-hmm. And now she's running against John Cornyn for the Senate race, which I think is fascinating. Which is she had a great, very fascinating. Uh, great video yeah. launching her campaign. Yeah, I think it was called Doors, if I remember correctly. Oh, right. Good job. Yeah. Oh, that was during her congressional race. Her Senate mm-hmm. race is uh, sort of a continuation of it. It's good. It's oh, like I three and a half. It. Yeah, it's like three and a half, four minutes. Okay, yeah. And then one final question for you. Do you think Steve Bullock, if he gets in the race, do you think he has a shot? I mean, do you think it's too late? I understand that he had to wait until the Montana legislative session concludes. But, man, I mean, we're like six weeks away from the first debate. you got to qualify. Yeah, I mean, how? I guess if he really worked hard to qualify via polling, then he could try to do that or donation. I don't know which one is easier, to be honest. It seems like a lot of the Senate candidates were struggling to make that donation threshold, which was fascinating to me. Well, and, you know, a lot of candidates are, I think, taking cheap shots at the DNC. And it's basically like, look, if you cannot raise money from 65,000 unique donors in 20 Mm -hmm. states to qualify for the first debate, how the hell do you think you're going to (laughs) beat Donald Trump? Yeah, Yeah, these are not hard. I don't think they're that hard to (laughs) standards to meet. In fact, most of them have met him. I mean, you know, I think you've... I think we've got how many? Most 20, have met them, 20, but it took I until the like issue, the 11th hour. The issue now, I think, like Cory is... Booker, sorry, go no, ahead. No, just go ahead. 
yeah, I mean, a lot of the candidates who are senators, literally the night before it was the deadline or whatever it was, mm-hmm. they were saying their own deadline. They were not qualified for the debates via the donations, which is just wild to me. But they I, did qualify based off the polling. Mm-hmm. Right. And, well, and they eventually made the 65,000 right. threshold, but I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because they're, you know, just have so much money from their Senate campaigns that they, like, are not used to raising money or they're not, like, they don't have the right strategies. I don't know. But there are some some interesting emails and desperate emails that these candidates were sending out it might to be try the, to... The John Delaney strategy. It yeah, might, yeah, I mean, it might be that some of them... I mean, really, some of these folks haven't had a tough race. Right. I mean, Beto had a tough race, so he was right. sort of, you know, I think he was one of the more list. battle-tested mm-hmm. people. You know, obviously Sanders and, you know, mm-hmm. 2016. But if you look yeah. at someone like a Kamala or, you know, Elizabeth Warren, um, Amy Klobuchar, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, a lot of these folks, like, they just haven't had a tough race in right. a while. Right, right. And do you think if you are a candidate who does not qualify for the debate stage this time around, let's say that Seth Malton doesn't make it or Steve Bullock runs and doesn't make it, do you think that there is still a pathway for you to the nomination? I've been thinking about that a lot. A lot. My mm-hmm. immediate instinct is to say no. But then it's like, again, we're so early in, in the cycle and the news cycle, it can have multiple news cycles in one day to the point where I think it's easy for people to move on to something else. But I think it would require a lot of um, a lot of work on the candidate's part to be able to match or exceed the momentum that other folks will experience who made it to the debates, right? Like mm-hmm. momentum begets momentum. If you have it in the beginning, it's easier to keep it going than it is to suddenly have it when everyone else has it. That's not to say it's impossible, but I just think it would be like, one, people are already overwhelmed by the number of people who are running. So the folks that they see on the debate stage, I think will become to them, to viewers and people all around the country, the the slate of candidates who are running. So then if suddenly, for example, Seth Moulton in August or September is like, oh, hello, hi, I'm here running too. It's like, well, where were you at the debates? Like, why haven't I seen you until now? Yeah, my theory is my theory is your DOA if you don't make it on the debate stage. Yeah. That's my theory. Yeah. And, you know, there's going to be so much press that leads up to, I mean, I'm sure, I'm assuming you guys are going to be mm-hmm. doing, you know, multiple yep. days of media leading up to the first debate. Yep. I know, obviously, MSNBC and NBC are going to be doing, and, and Telemundo mm-hmm. will be doing a lot of coverage um, leading up to the debate. And if you're not part of that coverage, I mean, that really right. sets you behind. Yeah. So yeah, I was thinking about this, too. I was like, what if, you know, Fox News was suddenly like, all the Democrats who don't make it onto the DNC debate stage come to a, a town hall with us, and you could just do them all in a row. Well, and by the way, I think Seth Moulton hiring Marie Harf was smart to be, to be I think, his deputy campaign manager, communications director. Um, it's interesting to me that she left because she had Fox because she has such a good perch over at Fox. Mm-hmm. But if you're Seth Moulton and you're trying to figure out some – very narrow pathway to make an impact. Mm-hmm. Maybe that pathway is being more active on Fox and right. trying to go after some of those moderate Democrats right. who, in independence to an extent, who might vote in the Democratic primary, who are watching Fox. Yeah. Yeah. There are a number of states, what, 13, I think, that have open primaries. Mm-hmm. So it's not crazy to think that some Republicans people, yep. could vote in Democratic primaries in the same way that people took a chance on Trump in 2016. They have their pick to take a chance on one of, what, 22 folks so far? So it's not impossible or crazy. And I also think that we, we've we talked about this on the show before, but I think it's going to be interesting to see Republican efforts in some of those states that have open primaries mm-hmm. to try to get 
Republicans to vote in the Democratic primary for somebody like Bernie Sanders, for somebody yeah. like, you know, Elizabeth Warren, someone that they can label as a socialist, yeah. um, you know, which... That'd be a great if, story. Yeah, it would if be, that right? happens. <laughs> I have a feeling it will. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. Um, Alexi McCammon from Axios. What's your Twitter handle? At Alexi, A-L-E-X-I. And... Um, we can uh, find all your story. Any any stories that are going to be coming out uh, next week that you want to. Um, we got the focus group story. Anything the else? Focus you want group, to and then another story about Democrats turning on each other. Oh. Twenty twenty Democrats. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining Adrian and I. Thank you, Alexi. We appreciate it. You guys. Me too. This is Doug Thornell for my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod. This has been the Electables, and we'll catch you next time.